Welcome to Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. On tonight's episode, we take a look at part two of the Toy Box Killer. Who knew a guy named David could turn out to be more disturbing than Chucky? This is Scarlet Tavern. with part two of a sick fuck oh yeah um all right well i guess let's just jump right into it um so on april 26 glenda jean jesse ray uh for those keeping track at home that is the daughter of david parker ray uh, she was arrested and charged with kidnapping women for sexual torture. More charges were added to Ray's, now totaling 37 counts. At Jesse Ray's arrangement, her lawyer, Billy Blackburn, sounds like a great lawyer, entered a not guilty plea. He stated that she vehemently and adamantly denies any such involvement with her father and predicted that many more people would be arrested before this case was over. One newspaper reported that Jesse had told the police 13 years earlier that her father had abducted and sold women in Mexico, but no victims were identified. Apparently there was no record of this report. Regardless of how many accomplices Ray did or did not have, he was quickly diagnosed by FBI profilers as a criminal sexual sadist. Carl Berg wrote a book called The Sadist about serial killer Peter Curtin. Another one we're going to get into. Um, it was one of the first psychiatric works devoted to the subject of a person who tortures others for his own pleasure. Um, and just for a, a little hint, Curtin would chew on his victim during sex before killing them. Um, Peter Curtin was a nasty little fucking dude. We'll definitely be doing Peter Curtin. Um, the word derives from the 19th century work of Richard Vaughn Kraft Ebing, Ebing in his book Psychopathia Sexualis, in which he set out to collect various sexual crimes into medical categories. He based the concept of deriving pleasure from humiliating or inflicting pain on other sentient beings on the writings of the 18th century Marquis de Sade. Sade. Uh, who, de Sade. whose philosophical philosophical pornography detailed violent sexual episodes, including murder. Uh, Kraft Ebbing thought that sadism in males was a distortion of the sexual instinct, and he was so certain it was exclusive to males that he never studied female sadists. In Hickey's Sex Crimes and Paraphilia, Lisa Schaefer and Julie Penn spell out the nature of paraphilia known as sadism. They indicate that it may or may not involve consent, and for some offenders, it's definitely more exciting to inflict pain on non-consensual victims. Most sadists begin as masochists, these authors say, who are aroused by the receipt of pain or humiliation. They then move into a dominating role and find they prefer it. Some even develop such such a hunger for a sadistic arousal that they become rapists and murderers. Among the most notable examples besides Ray are somebody who we talked about, Robert Berdella, and Canadian team of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. Another one who we will talk about. Uh, we heard a lot about that around here. They're actually from just on the other side of of the border with us. Yeah, they, they had three women that they kept as sex slaves and killed. Um, and it was very rare to have a team like that. Um, the types of activities sadists enjoy include whipping, handcuffing people, hanging them, choking victims into unconsciousness, and then reviving them, stomping on them, using substances to induce altered states of, un of consciousness, 
electrocuting, piercing, raping, cutting, and keeping them imprisoned. They might also enjoy inflicting humiliation such as covering victims in excrement. Some sadists even hire themselves out to masochists to inflict a controlled choreographed scenario. While there are differing opinions on this condition, its causes remain obscure and it appears to form during certain associations in adolescence. Even so, more than one-third of people with this condition report discovering their condition well into adulthood. They enjoy the feeling of power and authority that arises from having their way with a vulnerable human being. There is no known effective therapy for those who compulsively harm others and not in a non-consensual, illegal manner. There is. It's called shooting them in the head. Um, I'm not against it. I. It's also called castration. Um, Ray had yet to be convicted, but one FBI agent who had seen the contents of Ray's toy box stated that the time, money, and effort spent on building up his extensive and varied inventory supported the fact that he was among the most extreme of sexual sadists. It was time to get him into court. State District Judge Neil Mertz made the decision to have Ray tried separately for each of the three victims. Very, very smart thing. Um, the reason that this was done by it being tried separately, because the, the problem is... There's no, like with everything else with the not having bodies, obviously he's not being charged for all of those because there's no proof, but we, we have varying degrees of, of evidence for each of the victims. If they would have been tried on all accounts and the jury would have seen, oh, there's not enough evidence for this victim, all of them would have been thrown out and it would have been done by him trying them three separate victims. It gets at least one of them to stick, hopefully. So this and was luck- a very smart judge. Yeah. And luckily also none of these cases were linked to another, um, very famous case where they tried them separately, but they were, they were one was one was linked to another. It was the Aaron Hernandez case. Um, Aaron Hernandez killed his what his fiance's sister's boyfriend or ex boyfriend and killed him and did ever and all that. But they couldn't talk about why he killed him because it was about a murder trial that was also happening separately. So yeah. you can't talk about two different cases. In that case, that was very risky. In this case, it worked out beautifully because they're all separate entities. You don't, like you said, lose one, you got the other two. Correct. And let's say they would have done all three. And it would have it would have been non-conclusive. They would have been able to throw it out. And let's say they get a they get new evidence on one of the other ones that, oh, this is a slam dunk. Well, I'm sorry. He, he'll never be able to be tried again for those. Um, it's a thing called Double Jeopardy. Also a very good movie. Uh, watch the movie, Double Jeopardy. Very good movie. Um, like half of it. Uh, but Double Jeopardy just means that you cannot be tried for the same crime twice. Um. Now, this means the same victim. So, let's say there's another victim. He can be tried for that one. But if they had put all three of these together, it was case was dismissed. New evidence came up for the first victim. They couldn't have tried him again. So, doing it this way, it, it gave them more of a chance to get everything done. Um, so... One trial was to begin March 28th, 2000 in uh, Tierra Amarilla for the kidnapping and sexual assault of Cynthia V. Judge Mertz had made it difficult to use all the evidence, according to Glatton Fielder, as he suppressed Ray's early interviews with the FBI and New Mexico State Police. He also banned the media from the Vior d'Ire, in which jury members were selected. And he Voir dire. Yeah, voir dire. Um, and he would soon punch even more holes into the case. Just after the jury selection, Ray apparently suffered a heart attack and was rushed to a hospital in 
Las Cruces. He did have a history of heart trouble, his attorney Jeff Royne said, but the prosecutor believed he could also be trying to, de to delay proceedings. If so, he succeeded, as the judge postponed for another week. That led to more legal delays, and a number of expert witnesses from the FBI were excluded. Then, unexpectedly, Judge Mertz decided to start a different trial, this one for the charging charge of kidnapping and torture of, in 1996 of the woman from Colorado. Although it was the case with the weakest evidence, Mertz scheduled the trial for the end of May. Ray was pleased with the delays, as if he were the one manipulating the system. It seemed to make him feel powerful, especially when Mertz excluded Ray's printed sheet of procedures for handling captives and all devices found in the trailer as no one could prove they had been there in 1996. While the prosecution had the victim's testimony about what had been done, as well as the videotape, that did not mean that the items she had been she had seen were the same ones acquired during the 1999 search. On May 7th, Angelica M., the second victim to accuse Ray, died from pneumonia at age 25. Wow. She'd become a drug addict, apparently unable to get past her horrendous experience. Without her testimony, that trial was potentially off the books. So it's crazy. So this is 1999, 2000. She died at 25 years old of pneumonia. It's very rare for that to happen, especially but if at her you're age. But, but she's also a drug addict. Yeah, so that's probably doing a lot to her health, her immune system and everything. I just can't get over the judge. He just seems like he's determined to hack and slash the case here. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a legal expert by any means. I don't. There's no. They didn't. We didn't go into a lot of the legal details on this. I mean, it just seems like well, we can't see. We can't prove that these are the same items, even though she described these items. What? Yeah, I I don't know. Um, a few days later, Cindy Hendy, now age forty, formally received her sentence. Cynthia V was present in court and she rose to tell the woman who had helped to terrorize her rot in hell. Hendy was sent to the women's correctional center in Grants, New Mexico on May 23rd jury selection for Ray's first trial finally got underway. In this case, he faced 12 counts of sexual abuse, kidnapping and conspiracy. The victim whose name was kept from the papers took the stand to testify what Ray had done to her. She had been 22 at the time. She claimed that Ray had tied her up and kept her naked the entire time she was at his trailer. However, her memory was murky and she wasn't able to convey very well that she'd clearly been held against her will. She had probably been drugged, but that could not be proven. Although the videotape was played for the jury and the victim insisted she would never have agreed to this kind of treatment, she was not a very good witness on her own behalf. On July 14th, the papers reported that Judge Mertz had declared a mistrial. Although the jurors had deliberated for more than eight hours, they claimed they could not come to an agreement about the 12 charges. Two of them could not find Ray guilty of criminal assault. The jurors who had voted to acquit, both in their 20s, had decided that the victim had not persuaded them that Ray had kept her against her will. I was not positive he was torturing her, one told a reporter for the New York Daily News. There's a lot of people who enjoy rough sex. Best statement ever. Yeah. <laughs> when the accuser wow. heard this news, she broke down in tears, unsure why the jury had not believed her. What would it take to convince people that she had not, that she had not sought out this treatment nor wanted it? She failed to understand. Ray showed no visible reaction, but Rain thought it was a sign that the jury had paid attention to the evidence or lack of it. Ray would be tried again, which meant the victim would once more have to relive the ordeal. Um, so this is, this is the other thing that you have to understand. We were just talking about double jeopardy. Mistrial does not warrant double jeopardy. No. Mistrial just means that something was wrong with this trial. We can go ahead and redo it. Now, if he was acquitted or also declared not guilty, guilty. Um, 
then they could not charge him, try and charge him again. But because this was a mistrial, they're able to go ahead and do it again and try and get more evidence. Really, I mean, it comes down to to witness prep. The, this girl, when you go to court, um, when, when you go to court, especially for prosecutors on the prosecuting side, um, you sit with the district attorney or the ADA, um, the assistant district attorney, sit down there, you go over the case files, they talk about your statements, they do most of the time, especially in something as high profile as this, they do a mock trial to get you used to it, where that district attorney is now going to play a defense attorney and try and throw you off your game and make sure that they get any bugs out. That is something that should have been done. I don't know if it was. That's something that should have been done with this girl, especially because of her memory issues. If she had memory issues, she never should have been up on that stand. No. Unfortunately, I think the prosecutor's office, I think probably in their minds, they knew they were dealing with a sick son of a bitch that was David Ray Parker. And they realized we just got to we got to throw everything at him and just hope to God something sticks. Probably I, I, I would, I would hope you're right that they would have thought to do at least some witness preparation, do that or whatever, but it may have come down to without us actually seeing that whatever he did to her, probably, I don't think her memory was probably ever going to get any better in this case. So I guess there's only so much you could do. Well, now, again, granted, this is 2000. We're in 2023, 23 years later. There's a lot that can be done for somebody who has a spotty memory of stuff. Um, there are s- specific techniques that when we get into doing um, witness statements and things like that, we, uh, we have the ability, we'll basically sit down with somebody and say, close your eyes. What do you hear? What do you smell? And because your brain may block some stuff out, but there are certain things that will trigger something. Um, Scent is the biggest trigger of all. Um, You, you could, let's say you're walking down the street and you, somebody walks by you and you smell a perfume that perfume, let's say it was on a ex-lover that you had 20 years ago. You will, the second you smell that perfume, you will think of that person. It is, there's just something about the, the smell, the scent glands that trigger stuff. So that's, that's why we always try and visually you may not have remembered everything and your mind may be trying to block it out, but then there are certain triggers that can be done to try and unblock that. They could have taken her to a psychologist. Um, and I mean, people go as far as hypnosis to try and get this done. There's also a, what they call a regression therapy, um, which is very similar to hypnosis. Um, not quite as induced and it's basically like Caleb's saying we're going to walk you backwards through the years and take you as young as we can for all these memories and see what unlocks does this memory unlock the next one does it unlock the next one does it unlock the next one so interestingly oh sorry Go ahead. No, I was just, I learned from listening to about another crime, I guess. Uh, and so I'll, I don't know about New Mexico, but I know in a, in a few states, including California, witnesses that uh, go under any kind of like induced like states of mind to for interviews like uh, hypnosis, uh, their testimony is actually inadmissible. It depends on, number one, the state. And it also depends on who it is that's doing 
the hypnosis. If they are a clinician that is um, trained and proficient with that and can establish a track record and that can say, hey, in, in the 25 cases that I've done, I've used this particular type of hip hypnosis in 15 of them. Of those 15, this was the result with no uh, dire effects, you know, then that then establishes a precedence for that clinician. So uh, a lot of courts across the country won't use it because it, there's still a lot of um, stigma. Stigma, yeah, a lot of stigma and belief that it is a lot of hocus pocus and oh you're gonna make the person um, bark like a dog when they hear a bell or, or quack like a duck when you mention a word you know that kind of thing a lot of parlor tricks involved but um so district attorney Ron Lopez gave a statement about his disappointment but he may not have been surprised from the start. He knew this had been their weakest case and that the victim herself would be on trial. Young girls who were out drinking were generally viewed with disapproval. Nevertheless, Lopez and his team declared their intent to retry Ray at a later date. It's not over yet. He said the state of New Mexico was not letting this defendant off the hook. Jury selection began in November, 2000 for the retrial with Jim Yance as the prosecutor. But just a few days into it, Judge Mertz died. That delayed the proceedings, as did the disqualification of two more judges. Finally, on April 9th, 2001, the trial commenced with Los Lunas attorney Kevin Suizia just appointed a judge on the judge's bench. So we are getting a brand new judge. Um... The Court of Appeals had upheld Mertz's ruling about the items found inadmissible, so Yance once again had an uphill climb, but he was more prepared to emphasize the nature of the victim's ordeal. The same people testified, including the victim. She testified about her abduction from a bar shortly after her marriage had fallen apart. She described being led on a leash like a dog from the large trailer to a smaller one. Her feet were placed into stirrups and she was strapped into place, whereupon Ray began to insert dildos of different sizes into her. She wanted to leave, she said, and she heard Ray lock and unlock the door many times. She was given nothing to eat or drink. Ray's new attorney, Lee McMillian, asked her why it had taken three years for her to come forward with the story. He also hammered her with differences in her testimony from the previous trial. She could only explain that her memory was hazy. He suggested it was all a fantasy that she'd made up. A psychotherapist, David Spencer, testified, just as he had in the first trial. He had been treating the victim, and her sleep disorders were consistent with post-traumatic stress disorder. Ray's audio tape and the videotape he'd made of what he had done to this victim were played in court. The victim cried as she watched, but the jury members showed no reaction. It seemed possible they might be inclined, like the first jury, to acquit. The defense called no witnesses because an expert on sadomasochist psychology was disallowed. This person supposedly would have addressed the nature of consensual sexual fantasy play that involved the rituals that Ray had used. Ray said that he wanted to testify on his own behalf, but his attorney had advised against it. He vowed that if he was convicted, he would fight all the way to the Supreme Court. If you're innocent, you're innocent, he said. I am innocent. So this is... This is the thing with him is throughout everything, he maintained that he was innocent, that everything was consensual. Um, he said that he said that with everything in in his trailer, that they were all for the pleasure of women that he got off by them being pleasured 
Yeah, that's it. Uh, I, I honestly, I gotta give his give it tip my hat off to his lawyer. His lawyer seemed to have figured out the best, the only way that his client Ray, David Ray, had a chance of getting off was for him to shut up, sit there, look as look like as much like a statue as possible, and hope to God that he could make it sound look like that the victim was either just confused and full of drugs or was just making this stuff up because that was really once they started testifying into the details i mean that shock value alone that stuff like that i mean you guys have been to court more than i have but that stuff like you you, you get that shock of, oh my god you did that you sick bastard you must be guilty i mean Plenty of interviews with jur with jurors that when they asked, well, what, what, where, where was it that you know you decided you were guilty? It's like when I heard about the crime and I looked at him. It's like, yep, that happened. So I could only imagine what would have happened if he had gone on that on the stand. He probably, he probably would have guaranteed himself a conviction on well, the first trial. And this, this is the thing: is I'm not sure why the jury had no reaction to the tape that i've heard the tape before um i'll see if i can find it um the tape's creepy it is just him talking on a tape giving his rules about what everything is what's going to happen you're, he says, uh, you're going to be tied up. You're going to perform oral sex on me. I'm going to rape you. I'm going to do this and this and this and this. Um, and we, so, and the tape always starts with, um, like, hello, bitch. And then he goes from there. It, It's a very creepy tape. Um and if I remember, it's like five minutes long. It, it's if if I can find it, because we're recording now. If I could find it, I will put it at the end of this video. Uh, of this, I mean, of this audio recording. Um, I guess it, it's hard. We don't we don't know what their we don't see what their reaction was. For all we know, they had a reaction. They were just expecting people to. You know, pearl clutching and swooning down, like, oh my god, how could you? I mean, maybe to them, not doing that was like, they didn't have any reaction. But then again, I mean, if a bunch of people are staring at me in the courtroom, I've seen jury boxes. I mean, you're kind of like right there front and center. I probably wouldn't do anything. I'd probably be trying to keep a straight poker face as well. Um... I, I don't know. I, I don't know what, like, it's almost like these people were desensitized to this. It could be. I mean, Aaron, you've, you've obviously testified in court. I mean, you, what, 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 what's the weirdest jury reaction you ever saw that you can talk about? Obviously, if you can't talk about it, it's, that's a, that understandable. Um, probably that. I mean, what what they're describing, uh, the the lack of uh, sensitivity, or or um, like I remember one. Um, I won't get into the details of the case, but we we had picked this this specific juror because we one hundred percent expected them to react a certain way when we disclosed um, some of the key pieces of evidence. And when that, <clears throat> excuse me, when that time came, the reaction was the complete opposite. And we just kind of looked at each other like, okay, um, that didn't go the way we thought it would. What do we do? Um, and I mean, Court's a funny thing. Jury trials are a funny thing. Um, and for those that don't know and have never been a part of one, 
there is a huge chess game that goes on before that jury ever hits that box. And, and it is a lot of psychology, a lot of reading, um, trying to figure out, is this person going to be in our favor? Do they look the part? Do they sound the part? Whatever. And unfortunately, a lot of people will come in and portray themselves as one way uh, in the hopes that they don't get selected and they end up getting selected. And then along comes the trial and out comes the true person. And you're like, well, that's not what we wanted. So a lot of factors, man. And, that, and that's, yeah. that's why you'll see most district attorneys love a plea bargain. Um, oh, 100%. 100%. It, it still gets a conviction. Correct. But they don't have to worry about a jury. Correct. And, and stuff what getting most acquitted. people realize your district attorneys and your state attorneys are conviction driven. Oh yeah, that's it's their right it's their money, that's how they get their pay raises, that's how their evaluations are done. And any one of you that are listening that are in that profession and you say that it's not the case, you're a liar. Yeah. It's yeah. simple as that. Oh, I mean, and, and they're, uh, they're lawyers, so they lie yeah. exactly. living. It's a given. Yeah. And there's so, also, I'm sure, depending on the case, there's probably an element of politics as well. There is. Because, yeah. oh, yeah. well, yeah, I mean, so. district, district, what pe I, a lot of people don't realize district attorneys are elected officials. For the um, most part. For in, the most part. In 90% of states, they are elected yes. officials. I, I, I don't even know if there is a state where they're not elected. Um, not that I know of. I'm pretty sure no, every single state, they are elected officials. And then. Correct. Both your DA and your ADA are elected officials, and then Correct. anything under them are hired by the district attorney and the ADA. Right. Um, right. And then, of course, there are stipulations of being a district attorney. You have to have X amount of years of law experience. You have to win a certain amount of cases, blah, 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 blah. Right. And then right. it is the politics game. You're, you, and typically, a district attorney, because the the voting is the same, usually the same time that they vote for sheriff and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the district attorneys and the ADAs will run alongside a sheriff. Um, mm -hmm. So same have, platform kind of thing. Yeah. So you have right. you have, and for those that don't know, the difference between so in most places you have a sheriff's office and you have a police department. A sheriff's office, the sheriff, the head honcho, that is an elected official. They go through a voting process. A police department has a police chief. That is a hired official. That Correct. they are not elected in. They are sought out. Basically, whoever is the base, in most cases, the mayor of whatever town right says, right. hey, I like this person, put them in charge of the police department. And that's the irony of the whole thing. That with, I would say, we'll use 90% just for a number, but it's a high percentage of police departments that are run by um, the mayor. 90% uh, of those mayors have no law enforcement experience. Yep. No. So they try and run it as a business, keeping it in mind that they're politically appointed, you know, politically elected. So your police department then becomes politically driven. Um, another thing that um, often most people don't realize also on the federal side of this with the state U.S. attorneys who go after cases, these are the guys who go after organized crime cartels. And other such things. Most times when they are going making a case, they will often, and this is the kind of the clash between, like, say, FBI and other – the, the law enforcement wing who are generally career officers who work 10, 20 years, uh, whereas U.S. attorneys, they are appointed by the president. or yeah. So yeah. their job – Depending on the president, their job is usually only eight years long, long, mm -hmm. if they're lucky. Um, and, 
Right. And in, in a lot of those cases, it's there, not about the best candidate. It's about, well, I like my your friend. face. I like the way you talk. I like yeah. the fact that you stood behind my platform, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. and, and also, this plays into case selections of what they go after because they've only got four years. They got to make it look themselves look good because even if the the incumbent president wins, they could still lose their job. Yeah. Because they come, they come. The president's like, I'm going to refocus the domestic policy agenda. You're, you're not needed. Bye bye. Correct. You, you no longer serve the pleasure of the president. <coughs> so <And> it may <coughs> that that brings up something that I was thinking about when we touched on the first trial and then into the second trial, and I think Ben, you had said, uh, what in the world? How how did they not? reach that conclusion or or whatever yeah um the the thoughts that i had was is this a small a small podunk town is it people you know prosecutors and attorneys that have not been exposed to a uh, crime of this magnitude because all of those play play a factor just like it does in law enforcement and in the investigation aspect of it. If you have officers who may be phenomenal officers, but if they're in small podunk agencies that don't see a lot of crime and, and a lot of cases like I did and Caleb did and, and things of that nature, they're not going to have that experience. They're not going to know what to do. Uh, you know? That that city in 2000 had a population of 1,403. And there's your answer. Yeah. So we're talking about, number one, a podunk town. Keep in mind, um, this is this is this this was a reservoir. Okay. So, Ele elephant so, butt reservoir. Podunk so. town. Um, small town lawyers. Small town judge, small town officers. This they were, in in all aspects, out of their element, one hundred percent out of their element. So and I what um so in two thousand we said one thousand four hundred three. I'm looking at the population in nineteen ninety nine. It was two hundred and twenty three. Yeah. So they, oh. they in were, one year it jumped up uh, 1200 people. This was probably for them. This was the biggest case they yeah, ever seen. It, this, this would have been like one of their own walking on the moon. And of course, this is probably the first time most of them have had FBI come in yeah. all yeah. of that. So which, which is surprising me. Like why would the FBI not just say our case state attorney, because there's because there's still a lot of restrictions. The fact that no bodies were recovered, the FBI's hands were tied. Well, and no the body, other, no crime. Well, and the other thing too is technically the only time the FBI can do this, he was never labeled a serial killer because Correct. of there being no bodies. He's just a sexual sadist. The only yeah. time the FBI can get into something like this is with it being like this is if he had crossed state lines. Yeah. Uh, and that's where and I he was did going not. He was, he only stayed in New Mexico. Yeah. It was to that area. So as much as the FBI probably wanted to, because I guarantee you that there was probably seasoned agents going, This is a clusterfuck. This is a clusterfuck. This is this guy's on a walk because these guys don't don't know you know, they're, they're asked what from they're the doing. elbow kind of thing. And so there's that frustration. <laughs> we had it with, with our agency. Yeah. Um, you'd get the smaller agencies and, and the, the police officers in, involved with that, those agencies. And you're going, just let me get in there. Let me take the lead. Could we have as the sheriff's department? Yeah, we could have, but they didn't don't. ask for it. Number one, because they don't, they didn't ask for it. And number two, as a professional courtesy, hey, this is yours. But in this aspect, with the FBI becoming involved, they did what they could. We're giving you all the resources that we can. Here's the profilers. Here's the investigators. Here's this. 
I'm sure that they made their lab available and analysts available and things of that nature, but that's it. That's all we can do. We'd like to try the case for you. We'd like to try it federally instead of locally, but because we don't have proof that he crossed state lines, we can't do that. Yeah, and just just for uh, retrospect, uh, the town I was born in and where he worked was, I mean, it was technically a small town. Yeah. But... In at this time, it would have. I looked it up. It we had 113,000 population, right? Compared to compared to there, it's a it's a huge place. But compared to a place like New York, where the population is like eight million, right? Or or even Miami, where you have Metro Dade, where the sheriff's office is so large that they basically took over the police department because the police department couldn't do the job. Yeah. So, so um, that it's definitely p- the population plays a factor in everything. Yeah. Um, the jury convicted him nevertheless on all 12 charges for that case. So he gave an interview to Albuquerque television station, KOB TV to offer his side. Get this. I feel raped. He said with some irony. I got pleasure out of a woman getting pleasure. I did what they wanted me to do. To explain the sadistic tapes that he had created, he said it was a source of entertainment for me to create these tapes. That's why there was a disclaimer at the beginning of the taping stated it was for adult entertainment only. With one conviction behind him, Ray now faced the possibility of worse yet to come and that he might spend the rest of his life in jail. In June, Ray's second trial began. Again, he started up with claims of innocence, but within a week he had reached an agreement and a plea deal. He said he was willing to plead guilty to the charges in exchange for cutting a deal for his daughter. She would receive five years of probation. To his mind, her freedom was the greatest gift he could give her. In this deal, Ray received, get this, more than 223 years in prison. I can only be sorry for what I did, he said enigmatically. McMillian said that there may have been another reason that Ray accepted the plea deal. Every soul long for longs for redemption. The guy has the desire to do something good. No, the fuck he does not. Yeah, okay. He doesn't want to do good. He just knows that he's going to be convicted anyways. Yeah, because once the word probably would have gone out, oh, he's already been convicted, so... Potential jury pool's probably been tainted because now they're potentially a juror is going to skip down and be like, that guy was convicted for raping and torturing another woman. Well, and on the hardest case possible with nothing yeah. to go on with spotty, spotty memory and all of that. So if he was convicted on that, um, and then said Ray even made a statement to the effects that the time in his cell would allow him an opportunity to reflect and get right with God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's him. And, uh, 89, 90% of the rest of the population, you know, you know who else yeah. had that whole thing and became a Christian in prison, a quote unquote Christian in prison, uh, New, son York's, of Sam? New York's greatest killer, son of Sam. Another one that we're going to cover. Um, yep. He he wrote a book about it. Yep. Um, Glenda Ray, the daughter, pleaded no contest to a kidnapping charge and received a sentence of nine years for second-degree kidnapping. So, <laughs> um, so the the now the plea deal does go in here. Six years were suspended, and she was to serve five on probation. So the plea deal that he gave. Was he was going to plead guilty so that she could receive five years of probation? Well, they did give her five years of probation, but they also gave her three years in prison because they sentenced her to nine years with five years probation, but they suspended six. So that means she served three years in prison. So they technically upheld their end of the deal. They gave her five years probation. 
They didn't read the fine print, though. They just added three years of prison on top of it. I can't believe they would give somebody that they knew was so, uh, such a light sentence like that. I get the feeling that they probably didn't have a lot of evidence on her to begin with. So this is the thing is they... David Parker Ray was more of a honeypot to them they would rather get him convicted because he was he did so much he was the name in all the papers they would rather get that plea deal not worry about the trial get the plea deal and to to be honest this is we we talk about you you said i can't believe that they would give such a small sentence i have seen people that they get involuntary manslaughter or something like that car accident even um second degree murder for dealing drugs that killed somebody that overdosed um most of them get probation that's it yep yep welcome to our judicial system yep america's judicial system is a joke it's broken and it's been broken for many and it will never be fixed nope we need to go back to like wild west times where we hang people in the streets or turkish jails yeah yeah russian jails yeah yeah let's go to russian jails um ray soon appealed his sentence he said that his plea had not been voluntary and that his exhausted mind was clouded by his ill health, the medications and the pressure applied by his legal counsel. A three judge panel rejected his appeal stating that Ray had been on a normal dose of medication at the time he made the deal and he had not complained about undue pressure from his attorney. He also had no expert to testify that the medication had confused him. Thus, the deal remained in place, but he wouldn't be serving much of this sentence. In May 28, 2002, just as he was about to be transferred to the general prison population at the Leah County Correctional Facility, David Ray Parker suffered a genuine heart attack and died. He was 62. Thank God. Um, Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Yep. Um... In November that year, state police officially opened the toy box to the public in hope that renewed media attention might help identify other victims and suspects. Inside was a poster that said, so when they say, when I say that they opened the toy box to the public, I'm saying that they took this trailer, they opened it up for people to walk through and look at. Kids day. Hmm? That this this was Bring the family. Uh, this is it's what it was. It was a tourist attraction, and yeah. um, it stayed that way for quite a quite a long time. Um, I don't know if it's still up, but yeah, you were able to look at it for a long time. Um, inside was a poster that said "Satan's Den" and a sign that stated "Bondage Room." The obstetrical table was still there, complete with clamps, leg stretchers. Electrical wires, straps, and chains. Ray had devised two sharp hooks, wrote one reporter, that were apparently designed to prevent his victims from getting up or resisting electric shocks. Inside a steel cabinet were numerous surgical instruments, and near it was a coffin-shaped box used to terrorize and contain victims. Ray's meticulous log was also available, showing how he kept records of what he did to each person. To ensure that no one escaped, he had rigged an elaborate alarm system and had written reminders to secure all collars and straps before leaving. With Ray dead, the investigation fizzled out. No bodies were ever found. No possible victims were identified. And no suspicious deaths deaths loosely associated with Ray were solved. Nevertheless, many sources peg him as a serial killer. A smart one. Um... And then according to Jim Fielder in in the book Slow Death, both surviving victims went on to form relationships and start families. That's good. I don't know. I mean, I I definitely can believe he's a serial killer, but 
the lack of the lack of bodies. I mean, he works for the state. He have everything. I mean, that's probably still like trying to find a needle in a haystack, considering how big the, some of the parks are mm-hmm. in New Mexico. I mean, it's more uh, like trying to find a hay a piece of hay in a needle stack. It, it's it's near impossible. I I think he. I definitely think he's a serial killer. Um. I just think that I, I, they I never just don't know. find the bodies. No. I just don't see I just don't know if that sixty body count is the, is accurate though. I, I my gut tells me it's lower. Um, I think it's more, more along the lines of like fifteen. Like I think he I think his primary goal was the sadoma sexual sadomasochist part of it and he just he just, he just figured okay I figured out how to control them I pump them full of drugs and then I kick them out and I mean this is and he probably figured location it's probably a bunch of drifters and and drug addicts going out into the desert or getting high and getting lost sure this isn't the first time these cops have found somebody like this um, and like you I think you said before Aaron this guy is a state is a state worker he's you know probably well known yeah people are just not going to believe what Dave Dave wouldn't do that these these are some crazy people look at look at this woman she's all she's all nuts especially in such a small town exactly so I think like I said I'm not I I think he did kill him I don't know I mean, any secrets he took, he took with his death. So I mean, we're just—he may, he may very well have killed sixty people. We're never gonna know unless we start combing every park and resident area that he worked in. Um, we'd probably be lucky to find any kind of victim. Well, and that's assuming he even buried anybody in state park. I, probably, he I seems like a. He's, I don't think. I don't think anybody was buried. I so we have to keep in mind. So he worked for the state parks, which means he probably did maintenance of the lawns, um, stuff like that. So this means that he has access to numerous chemicals mm-hmm. and knowledge of how chemicals work. So my thought is he concocts a chemical that breaks down the bones and the skin and everything else and he he gets rid of it throws it into these woods where animals take care of the rest i mean let's be real all you need is a six foot pole and a bag of lime yeah that's all you need um i honestly believe a lot of these numbers Probably been inflated by everybody, all of his like accomplices. Probably in the fact that just they got everybody got caught, every man for themselves or a woman for themselves. So everybody starts making up stories in order to be like, like his daughter even's like, Oh, I tried to file a report at the police that my dad was kidnapping and selling women in Mexico. Really? No, the no, we're poor. The one thing that surprised me with these trials is that they never considered a change of venue. Yeah, I mean... That surprised me, because you have such a small town, so you have a a small jury selection. I I don't think that they... I don't think that they selected the jury from the town. I think that they went to the next biggest town. Which, in this case, sounds like it would be Hobbs, New Mexico. Yeah, I, I think that they selected from there, because... They they would never be able to have a biased jury, a non biased jury. Well, that's and that's where I was going. With I that. I think I think so, that they pulled from a from a bigger town. So they did a change of venue and just never specified that in any of the reportings. Yeah, they uh, they would have they would have pulled from Hobbs, grabs people from there, um, and done that because otherwise you would you would never in a town that small in 1999 when. Everything started in 1999 until 2000. Yeah. You have a population yeah. of 200 people. Yeah. You have everybody knows everybody. Yeah. You, I mean, we had a population of 130,000. I knew a majority of the people there. 
Yeah, and and you and I saw firsthand how difficult it was sometimes to find an unbiased jury. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's with one hundred thirteen thousand. Um. Yeah. It. I like I said. I think whatever secrets Dave Dave David Ray Parker took he had he took with him to his his grave, and. Whoever his victims are, unfortunately, he probably buried or got rid of the evidence of them, and we'll never find them. And he probably also made sure that any disposal of it was done strictly by himself, because in the whole time, none of his other accomplices, especially his girlfriend, who seems to have been his like right hand person in this whole thing, didn't even. I mean, she could have. She served thirty six years in her term. If she had had bodies to point to, she probably could have gotten an even lesser sentence than that. Yeah, I think in that aspect, it was uh, less hands in the honeypot is better for me, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and just put them out there and leave them for the animals and, and let nature do its thing. Um, According to what I'm looking at, you, the... Toy box is still at the FBI office in Albuquerque. Dude, let's go to Albuquerque. I'm good. I'm going. I'm going. That's on my bucket list now. Um, it's a weird bucket list. Hold on, toy box. Yeah, so toy box trailer. You can still you can still go visit the toy box trailer. I'm there. Five (laughs) five thirteen Bass Road, Elephant Butt, New Mexico. I'll, I'll tag you on Facebook. Um. Yeah. So there, there's a website called Morbid Tourism, where you can you can go there and you can it'll give you different yeah, places. Right. Like I can search like Kentucky, um, and it's got the standard uh, a shooting from Louisville in 1989. Um. Yeah, you can, you can choose all these different places and it'll tell you like what's there like in New York there's John Lennon's assassination site, Amityville Horror House, David Berkowitz's apartment, Donna Loria shooting and the Station Square Son of Sam shooting. Tells you wow. where it's at, how to get there, all of that stuff. Wow. Um but yeah, so uh it's still there. Um but yeah, so uh, I think next week Ben will Ben will be doing an episode. Um, when let's see when this comes out, we will have already you and Pam will already have been here. Um, but I'm going to we are going to visit the. Uh, Ohio State Reformatory. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going to. I'm going to try and take video in there if they'll let us. Uh, I'm just. I'm. I'll tell them about our podcast and everything, and see if they'll let us take video, um, and interview some of them and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, because uh, Ohio State Reformatory, that it's one we might do. We might actually do a story on. That'd be cool. Um, because, yeah. obviously, it is one of the most haunted places in Ohio. But, it was, de- it was a, Ohio State Reformatory is gorgeous. It was, it was built, it's a prison, but it was built to look like a mansion. Because they felt like prisoners would be able to be reformed better in a place that did not look like a prison. Um, and it was, the place was so big that when you were a guard back in the day, when it was active, you were able to live there with your family. Wow. It, that was included in your employment contract that you live wow. there. Yeah. So it, it's pretty cool. Um, uh, the Ohio had the electric chair. Um, mm-hmm. so they, their electric chair is named Sparky. And Sparky is there. We'll get to see it in the museum. Mm-hmm. So we'll get we'll get to see the electric chair and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see if oh, we can yeah. take video and 
post post video and stuff like that. Um, I'm stoked. And yeah, so uh, with that, I believe we are all set to go. Um, so I would like to thank you for visiting the Scarlet Tavern. Please remember to turn in your glasses, push in your seat, and as always, tip the bard. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.